Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to remind you about our upcoming Young Adult Liturgy Conference called Transfigured, and that will be a study weekend that we are doing from June 15th through the 17th. So it's a Friday night through Saturday morning, and you're going to get seven lectures from Liturgical Institute faculty and visiting faculty. And we even have Dr. Michael Foley coming to give a lecture about the liturgy of drinking, which is going to be amazing. And then we are going to try drinking <laughs> liturgically afterwards. So it's going to be a, an amazing weekend with, with sung mass and chanted morning prayer and evening prayer and great lectures. So if you're interested in this conference, uh, you can stay here on campus. Uh, lodging and meals are included in the registration. You can go to www.btransfigured.com. And uh, this week we are talking about Monsignor Francis Mannion's 10 Theses on Church Architecture, which is just, there's some really phenomenal stuff in here. So I think you're really going to enjoy this week's episode. So without further ado, episode 22 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Now that's a podcast. Now that's a beer to keep the day going. You know what, Jesse? Yes. I slept for nine hours and one minute last night. What was your quality of sleep? One, zero, zero, baby. I don't think I would ever get that. Dennis has this, uh, what is it? It's called Uh, Sleep Cycle. It's like an app. Yeah, and you take it to bed with you. It's a nap app. It's a nap app. Well, yeah. And it tells you, it shows you a graph of like your deep sleep, your light sleep, whatever. Mm -hmm. So my statistics, there's my chart. Look at that. I'm in deep sleep almost all night, except that one time I got up to use the little boy's room, two o'clock. All right. I would never hit that because there's always crying babies in my house. You, you probably have that, you'd, Chris. You'd be depressed when you woke up. Oh, my gosh. Saw how yeah. Poorly I had slept. zero minutes of snoring and 100% sleep quality. I was making coffee for Chris this morning, even before I had any of it. It was like coffee talk already. Now I've had coffee you should and do like, you 100% should do. sleep quality. You should do a, a coffee monologue. With, after you drink a cup of coffee. Yeah, just, could you guys both leave, please? <laughs> I got something to say, and, you're, All right, and you're in the way. We're talking about... Monsignor Francis Mannion's 10 yeah, Theses on Church Architecture. Now, we've talked about him a lot. You know, he's the founder of... The Liturgical Institute. Liturgical Institute, which is where we all are right now. Mm-hmm. And he also founded the Society for Catholic Liturgy, and he was the rector of the cathedral in Salt Lake City. as quite a young man, and founded a choir school, and probably single-handedly brought the... Um, what we think of as normal beautification of liturgy into mainstream. You know, he always worked with the bishops and he was very careful to be a man of the church and not, you know, get things that would make people unhappy. So anyway, in the 90s, he wrote an essay called 10 Theses or, or Toward a New Era in Church Architecture and it has 10 points. And even though it's 20 years old now, it's still really, really, really good. You think we can get through 10 of these in one podcast? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> Chris, I think so. I think we'd... I'll keep you accountable. Should we go? Yeah, go. Chris, you ready? What's number one? Number one. He says, architecture 
plays neither a sacral role nor merely a functional role. See if you guys can figure out what that means. The place of worship is neither temple nor meeting house, but sacramental building. Now, I've talked about temple a lot, mm-hmm. and he says it's not a temple. It's not just a place that you go to sacrifice something and then leave. Right. Or it's not a place where God is. A temple is is exclusively contained or something like that, right? Right. So a temple in the ancient tradition means that God lives there and he's only in there. And so uh, it's a little box where God is. Well, that's not the Christian view because Christ came and brought God to the whole world and you're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. So sometimes people get nervous about temple language because they think it means that God is limited to a little box and everything else stinks. And so it's that either or mentality that inside the church is holy, holy and the world is yucky, yucky. What, Chris? Well, so, but, but what's the alternative? That God's everywhere and it doesn't matter that you have right, a Right, that God's everywhere church? and nothing is any better than anywhere uh, else. Good question. So you Good don't question. need churches. Then. Yeah. Right, and so a lot of people are stuck in between those two things. But what he says, it's not merely functional, just to keep the rain off your head, and it's not, it's not sacral in the sense that God's limited to this little box. But he calls it a sacramental building. Why do you think that means, Chris? You probably know. You had one senior manual as a teacher, didn't you? Yeah, like you said, it was a long time ago, though. It means that... Uh, Don't you have your class notes? <laughs> <laughs> I probably do, actually. Uh, that through outward uh, and sensible realities, you know, of the door and the windows and the edifice and all those things, God is in some way made present. The heavenly Jerusalem is made present in and through and with those uh, outward signs. That's, that's, what, I was, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that sounds smart. Well, yeah, took exactly. the words right out of my mouth. Okay, so just so we don't get through 10 theses here. So on the one hand, what he's saying is uh, uh, it's not like a temple where God is exclusively living. Right, we although God that. is But there. on the other hand, we don't want to say that it's completely irrelevant because God is living everywhere, so he's as present you know, in the, you know, the, the McDonald's next to the church as he is in the church. We don't think that either. It's somewhere in between those two extremes, right? Yes. And, so, and that's the sacramental. Right, he says it's part of the sacramental order of the church. So what's the sacramental order of the church, Chris? Or the sacramental well, system or the sacramental show. principle? I mean, you, you know all well, about just this. The sacramental principle, is that how God comes to us, communicates to us through outward signs and how we in turn reciprocate and speak to God through outward signs too? Right. Everything hinges upon the sign. So we're pretty cool with the seven sacraments. We're like, yeah, yeah, pouring of water is how the grace of baptism is conferred. And Eucharist and, and precious blood are like, oh yeah, that's something. Externals are bearer of um, the invisible spiritual reality. And then when it comes to the church, it's like, oh, it's a neutral beige meeting house with a couple of holy pictures on the wall. <clears throat> is right. No, it doesn't make sense. No, everything in the church, as we've talked about before, is part of the revelation of the sacramental system. So if you're worshiping with angels and saints, you see angels and saints. If you think the church building is an image of the mystical body where all the parts are connected as members of that body, then you'll see all those parts and they're brought to glorification. So it's not that hard because we've talked about it many times. But in the 1990s, this was kind of a big deal. And you know why? There was a document out at that time called Environment and Art in Catholic Worship. That was the guidelines for building that the Bishops Committee on the Liturgy of the U.S. Bishops put out. And it said that the church was a skin for liturgical action, which need not Wait, look like what? anything else past or present. What does that even mean? A skin for liturgical action. It's the big circus tent and doesn't have to look like anything that basically the people doing what they're doing is the only thing that counts. And so therefore the church doesn't mean anything. That hurts. Oh, my, it, that it hurts does. my heart. And imagine that's been replaced now 18 years. But if, if that was the guidelines of the bishops, your, skin, your church must look like a skin for liturgical action, which need not look like anything else. And then you wonder why churches didn't look like churches back in, the, in that time. So he was the first guy to come along and propose an alternative to that that was credible and reasonable. And so not merely functional, like a skin for liturgical action, and not 
hyper, hyper temple where God is only inside and not everywhere, but it signifies God's presence in the world and anticipates the glory of the heavenly future, and we can go in there and encounter that. Excellent. Yeah. Number two? Oh, number two. All right, we'll never get through them all. Okay, number two. The holiness of the Christian assembly. Okay, hang on, hang on. The holiness of the Christian assembly and the holiness of the liturgical building are not oppositional, but harmoniously related. And here's a phrase, mutually constitutive. Hmm. The building is both domus dei and domus ecclesiae. That's his number two. There's a lot of stuff in there. So Mutually constitutive. Right. I like that. So constitutes, what is the thing constituted? By, or by what is a thing constituted. So if you were going to make a recipe for bread, you would say, well, what's in it is flour and yeast and whatever. None of those things by themselves are bread, but you put them all together and you do the right stuff, you get bread at the end. So it's not like, well, bread is either flour or yeast. It's flour and yeast. Together, they constitute bread. So the holiness of the people is, in fact, contributing to the holiness of the, uh, the, the church building and the liturgical action, and the church building contributes to the holiness of the people, and they work together. That's when you said your heart was hurting because mm-hmm. the building was only supposed to be a tent or a skin for liturgical action. I think what that means is the conclusion that because the people inside the building are the true living stones of the church, the conclusion that therefore the outward building doesn't need to look like anything should make your heart hurt because, because you're an important living stone of the church, mm-hmm. the, the, building, the, the building itself should reflect your heart that's being divinized unto yeah, God. And right. so when it doesn't, it's... It's doing an injustice. Imagine if someone said, uh, sorry, Chris, but imagine if someone said your domestic life is so healthy that you don't need a fireplace or a dining room table or a picture of your grandma or a nice, you know, hearth to sit around or comfortable sofas or places to be with your kids. Like your family life is, is what it is. So your house is a skin for domestic. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And you know, part of the notion of this is that there's a, a flattening out of what they think the liturgical assembly is at this time, that it's just the people and the priest as opposed to the larger mystical body with the angels and saints and creation and the mother of God and the river of water of life and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and all of that stuff. So um, there's two poles that he mentions at the end here, Domus Dei and Domus Ecclesiae. Chris, what's Domus Dei? House of God. What's Domus Ecclesiae? Word of God. Domus is still house, but Ecclesiae is... House of the church. The church, church, right. So... Thanks, Chris. <laughs> there was a time when people were like, oh, the church is Domus Dei. It's the house of God. It's where God dwells with us, real temple language. And some older churches you'll see over the door, it says Domus Dei at uh, Portacelli, Gate of Heaven. So that when you go into church, it's like house of God and gate of heaven, which is a real high sacramental theology of church architecture. But it doesn't say house of the church either. So um, they wanted people to think, no, this is where the church belongs. This is where the church gathers. This is where the church assembles to worship. But what happened is because there was so much emphasis on Domus Dei or House of God before, like you know, so the hippies of the 70s said, oh, no, 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 that's bad. That's, that's dumb. That's triumphalism, old church. It's just the house of the people of God. It's just the house of the church. And then they started talking about house and started making it look like living rooms or some you know, house from the 70s, wood floors and beige mm. drywall and house plants. Shag and, carpet. And shag carpet, yeah. We still have a shag carpet in one of the chapels on this campus. It's yes. like from the, clearly from the 70s. It's just mm. sitting there. What color is it? Uh, it's kind of a teal and green yes. mixed up, yeah. Um, Big stuff. But the table, the altar doesn't look like an altar. It looks like a table. So this domestic notion, it's the house of the church. So that was the presiding idea at that time. And so he's saying, nope, it's not either house or uh, house of uh, God or house of the church. It's both. It's the house of God 
and the House of Church. And together, these are mutually constitutive. Is that your computer I going ding dong? Turn it is. your volume it? down. Yeah, just press the mute button there. Yeah, this, button? you need some mutiny. So you see what Monsignor Mannion is so brilliant at doing here. He doesn't come along and say, hey, you stupid blankety blanks who I disagree with. You're dumb. The opposite of what you say is true. He says, you know what? Something you have is right. It is the house of the church. It is the um, temple, but it's both. And so instead of saying you're wrong and reactionary, being reactionary in the other direction, he says, yeah, it's a, it's a both hand. It's all the either ors, either house of the church or house of God coming together in the good Catholic both both and. All right, number three. All right, number three. Adequate liturgical architectural theory and practice. Are you on the edge of your seat? Enshrines the recognition that the primary elements of liturgical events are ritual form, worshiping congregation, and ordained ministry. This should sound familiar because sound familiar. this what is a summary of one we did what in the first season. Congregation, rit, right, and ordained ministry. Remember the three constituent elements of liturgy? Oh, yes. Yes, so... Basically, he's taking another essay that he wrote and kind of summarizing it into one little Copying thing. Copying it, getting extra credit. <laughs> yeah, I know how it works. But if you have too much congregation, emphasis on the congregation, then you're going to have a church in the round. The altar won't look like anything. The priest won't have a decent you know, chair that signifies his office. He'll just be one of the gang. If you have too much ritualism, then basically you make a pretty house for music and ceremonial, and who cares if the people sit behind columns or can see or hear. If you have too much clericalism or clerical emphasis, then, again, the people don't partake as they're supposed to. And so what he saw in his day was that congregation was winning the day and churches were basically big auditoriums so people could see and hear, but they were missing a lot of the emphasis of the other stuff. And so he's again saying, if there's too much of one thing, the answer is not too much of something else. The answer is bringing everything in balance, head, members, and the right. So the priest, the people, and the right all have the right place. And when you know that, then the architecture... And when Don't, you know that, my fault. <laughs> it, it is a rough morning for us. <laughs> and then when you know that, then the peop- our architecture falls in, in place. All right, so if in his day it was congregationalism, that was, yes. so what, is, what is it in our day? Probably still largely congregationalism, I would think, although it's balancing out some. Although, you know, there are certain facets of the church that are kind of hyper-traditional people who probably are pretty okay with the clerical dominance. Um, and they'd rather sit there and be silent during Mass and let the priest do everything as opposed to take their part and say what they're supposed to say and do what they're supposed to do. So the challenge is always keep it in balance. Head and members are one body together as Christ. And so they're talking to each other sometimes, and then together as Christ, they're talking to the Father sometimes. I wonder if tabernacle placement doesn't speak to this too. I mean, if 30 or 40 years ago, tabernacles were off to, off to the side, wherever that side might be. Right, why was that? Congregationalism. Right, because the congregation was all that mattered. And also they were trying to emphasize liturgical action rather than Eucharistic devotion. And so if the te- people were still doing Eucharistic adoration during Mass instead of Mass during Mass, then some people said, well, this is a corrective. We have to get this thing out of here. But you wonder if, I mean, what's happened with the tabernacle in the last just 10 years? Well, they're coming back they're into coming sanctuaries. Back. Like coming Madden. back in a big way. Coming back. <laughs> but I don't think that anybody does Eucharistic devotions during Mass now. No. no. You know, if you were in 1952 and it was a silent low Mass and you couldn't understand or see or hear much of what was going on, well, you open up your Eucharistic prayer book and do your nice prayers to Christ and the Blessed Sacrament, which is good, except it's not liturgy. Mm. What about uh, the priest facing the people or facing with the people? Well, there you go. There's sort of a congregational emphasis that the priest has, that people had to see every action of the priest, and one of the ways that that was helped by was by turning toward the people. So in the 70s and 80s, you hear a lot of people say, if you were the host of a party, would you turn your back on the 
the guests at your table? <laughs> and my answer would be, the mass is not a party. Well, it is, in a sense. Except. They're going to say the type of guests you would have at your parties. Just. Yeah, that too. <laughs> they would say, please turn your back on that. <laughs> um, but what, see, if you get this notion of the mystical body right, then the priest and the people together are one body addressing God the Father, especially during the Eucharistic prayer. And so does it make sense if the head and the body together are addressing the Father? Does it make sense for the head to look at the body or look at the Father? This is the argument that people he would make. He even wrote another uh, article once... Um, Maybe it was just an editorial on a clerical uh, on a new clericalism where you know the priest facing you know the people either the people want him to be funny and witty and clever and uh, the rest or the priest himself wants to and so it's kind of a uh, it, it puts the attention back on the priest so I don't I don't know that he supports odd orientum worship I suspect he doesn't well, that's today, actually number ten so oh, you're, you're okay, getting ahead sorry. of us on here in yeah hey we're not we going to get to that anyway let's so. get to number four first come on. <laughs> But that's the question, you know, he was one of the interesting people. People used to think clericalism was when the priest used to say the mass silently and didn't let people respond and hogged the liturgy all to himself. And when a priest came around and was friendly and talk show host model and chit chat and all that, that, that was letting the people have the liturgy. But what Monsignor Mannion put his finger on was, in fact, the priest was owning the liturgy, but in a different way taking what the people should expect, which is the stability of the right, and making it his own and turning it into something that he wants it to be. So he called that a, a new clericalism, which hmm. really made people think. Oh, that's, oh, that's actually pretty fascinating. I would never have thought about that. And that's why I am not Monsignor Francis Mannion. <laughs> well, if you went to a Shakespeare play <laughs> and the director just like added stuff, you know, or took things out and said, oh, this is not relevant. I want this to be relevant to the people. Juliet will live. Right. Sorry, you, spoiler alert. Like you go to that expecting stability of the play like you want to see Shakespeare you don't want to see, unless you go to some weird you know Greenwich Village adaptation and then they tell you and you're waiting for that then you know um, but then you have a right as a as a listener to a concert a symphony to hear the symphony that's promoted there it's even mm -hmm. more so in the in the sacred liturgy all right okay number four four, four. okay four, good Jesse's four, uh, four, Jesse's paying attention Catholic worship requires a renewal of the iconographic tradition. Modern iconoclasm generates a narrowing and an impoverishment of Christian vision and self-understanding. I've always thought that. <laughs> You're going to have to break that if one I've down for me, I've said that once, please. I've said it a thousand times. <laughs> okay, so remember, if this church is a skin for liturgical action. Which it's not. Well, but if in that time, but that, imagine was, it that is. was the model, then you build a big empty church. He's, he's saying the iconic tradition, the iconographic tradition of having images in a church has to come back. And I think it still does. You know, today a lot of people build traditional churches and they, they put a Mary over there and a Joseph over there and a cross in the middle and they think they're done. But he says this iconoclasm that was happening at the time generates a narrowing and impoverishment of the Christian vision and narrowing of the self-understanding. Let's start with the Christian vision. Why would not have, why would an absence of images lead to a narrowing of the Christian vision? What's the Christian vision? Well, to see our brothers and sisters in Christ in their heavenly glory. Nice. Exactly. Was yes. that right? Yes. Did I Where's say that? something smart? Do we have the, do we have the bell today? Oh, oh Ding. my goodness. Jesse. Well, right, because just like you have pictures of your grandma, grandpa, who might have passed away on the fireplace mantle so you can remember them, realize they're still with us, that's a start. But the mystical body theology is that they're worshiping God too, people in heaven even in purgatory are worshiping God. It's one mystical body that's assembled. So we're the living part of the church. They used to call it the church militant, militant right? And then there's the church, oh, yeah, church in heaven, who's the church 
triumphant. Right. And then the church in purgatory. Um, waiting, the church in waiting. <laughs> suffering. <I laughs> the ladies oh. in waiting, right. Oh, suffering. So th- notice they don't call it that group, that group, and that group. They call it the church. Every one of those bodies is, is part the church. of the church. Got and, it. And it's not the church like the hierarchical institution on earth, though that's part of it. The church is the mystical body of Christ worshiping. And so they worship, we worship, the, heaven, the angels and saints worship. We're all one body. And if you don't know that, and if you don't have see an that. iconographic that tradition, vision. you don't see them, then it's easy to forget and say, we're all there is. Would you say that we're mutually constituent? <laughs> I think we would be, right? <laughs> Wait, what was that? Mutually constitutive. Yes, that's what I was saying. Because the church is constituted by all these different communities of the liturgy. So, because Christ is constituted by all those different uh, Well, it's a good question. I mean, you know, to listeners and to ourselves, I mean, think of the church that you usually go to and what do you see? I mean, how does it, does it meet this litmus? Yeah, are you at all aware that there are souls in purgatory basically next to you in the pew? Or souls in heaven next to you on the other side in the pew and you're one body? Sometimes there's somebody suffering right next to me in the pew, but I don't know that that's what you're talking about. Especially if you've been to Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you are aware of that, is it just because of a, an intellectual uh, uh, formation or is it because there's some vision of these things in... Iconography and windows. Exactly. Like you don't absolutely need these things because you might just have a really good sacramental imagination and you can imagine those things next to you. But for the most part, you got crying kids and finding a parking spot and you're tired and you haven't had your coffee yet and you need to, you need help with all these things. Music, the sound of the angels and saints, and then you actually see the angels and saints there. So that's the narrowing of the Christian vision. But he also says it's a narrowing of our self-understanding. Mm. which is actually, that's like a Trojan horse kind of phrase there, right? Because Mm -hmm. a lot of the therapeutic language of liturgy at that time was we are church and we have to understand ourselves and we have to know who we are, we are, we are. And it was very congregational people on earth. Why would these heavenly beings be part of our self-understanding? They're not, they're not us except that they intercede for us or related to us. And they used to be us. (laughs) They are us, right? Oh yeah. Right. You know, the hands are, what's that's that line? Uh, what I am my own grandpa. No. Oh, what you are. I once was. Oh yes. What I was you, (laughs) what I am, you soon will be. Mm. And what I am, you hope to be soon. I realize, but Uh, yeah. yeah. Is that what we're talking about? I think think we got it. That was a joke, but it is actually theologically bright. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wish all of your jokes were theologically bright. Yeah, me too. Um, Self-understanding means I'm not just me alone. I'm part of a corporate worship. That body, the corpus, is Christ's body. And so to be worshiping with those beings is to know who I am in relation to angels and saints and the Trinity, souls and purgatory. So the Christian assembly includes all those things. How do I know who I am? Well, I see all those things. How do you know who you are? It's like your aunt says, you look just like grandpa when he was your age. And then she pinches your cheeks. (laughs) That's how you know. know, That's how you know who you are, right? (laughs) You need a liturgical cheek pinch. There's a good book by uh, Frank Sheed called Theology and Sanity. Have you ever? I probably mentioned this. Like uh, no, you haven't. This is a new book for me. That is something that you have not mentioned. uh, Oxymorons. Thanks. Theology okay. and sanity are usually considered as uh, opposites, aren't they? Yes. yes. So his point is, is if you are seeing things that aren't there or not seeing things that are there, your mind or your senses are somehow not healthy. So to see theological truths that were associated with uh, others in the mystical body is a sign of sanity. So to see things theologically or architecturally or liturgically 
uh, as the church says, is not just a nice thing to do or something like that. It's a matter of a, of a healthy mind and a healthy mm-hmm. soul and, you, and the very sanity of yourself. That's like the basis for almost every Twilight Zone episode, isn't it? It's like, you are right and everybody else doesn't get it and mm-hmm. they treat you like the crazy person. In fact, I saw a quote That's from, like my life. <laughs> I saw yeah. a quote on the wall in one of the co-workers' offices here from Flannery O'Connor and it says, come to know the truth and the truth will make you odd. <laughs> because you're the only one who knows it. Everybody yeah. will think you're a weirdo. People thought I was odd before I knew the truth. So Now you're even odder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you're an otter. <laughs> I'm like no otter. <laughs> all right. Oh, all right. Gosh. All right. Number what number five. are we on? Five. 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 Okay. This is a long sentence too, but a rich architectural and artistic expressivity is crucial to Catholic liturgy to generate an adequate doxological ethos. The glorious worship finds its dynamism in the eschatological. These hardly roll off the tongue. I mean, yeah. Would have, if we would have made these a little more quippy and memorable, I mean, well, that's why, that's why, we're, yeah. like, that's why we're here. These are all in his book, Masterworks of God, by the way. That's uh, one of the essays collected in the, the very first Hill and Brand book that we published here. Yes. Shout Institute. out to Kevin. Kevin. Kevin, wherever he is. Um, so if you're going to have artistic expressivity, which is crucial to the liturgy, which we just decided, you have to have a doxological ethos. What's doxology? This was one of our other ologies too, three uh, constituent ologies. Remember my three favorite ologies a long, long time ago? Uh, eschatology, yes. cosmology, and, and doxology. doxology. Right, so she's... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nailing it. Mm-hmm. I know. And we should Just charge, don't ask me what doxology means. We should charge you tuition for all the things yeah, you've learned. Yeah, you really here. should. Or, well, <laughs> you should just give me free credits towards a master's degree. Well, I'll talk to the dean. Okay, what is doxology? You know this, Chris. Doxa means uh, praise, praise, worship. Right, or glory. It's a right, glory, right, okay. um, right praise is associated with that, but like dox, um, orthodox, it means two things. Right it worship. means belief or mm-hmm. opinion and also means glory of God because the glory of God is when you have a right opinion about God. Or what's, what, would we, what do we mean by the doxology? If you're in liturgy hours, if you're going to... Glory the, to the Father, glory to the, the Son, to the Holy Spirit. That's the, the doxology. doxology, right. Yeah. So whenever God is glorified or God's glory is manifested, that's called the doxological reality. So when your church has marble and gold leaf and careful uh, mosaics and design, that's letting God's glory come through into this world. It's a doxological way of making an, uh, an architecture that shows its glory. But what is the basis for having that glory at all? Just because we like pretty stuff? Is it the... Uh, well, it's already been, it's in, been given incarnation. to us. Incarnation. Well, that allowed, that's the process that allows it. But what glory is coming into our own time? The, the, heavenly, glory the heavenly glory. Yeah, that, so the future glory that's mm-hmm. present in heaven, but be future for us. And that's eschatological, right? That's the end times, the glory of the end times. So the sentence is not as hard as you think. He says, to have an adequate... Do- it is. <laughs> to have an adequate doxology, you have to have eschatological. Because, you know, the glory of God is already in heaven. It's going to be in the earth fully at the end of time. So if you're going to have that, you have to realize that what you're doing is bringing heavenly glory into our own time. And he says, that's the dynamism of a proper architecture. If you go into a church and it's beige and dull and carpeted, and you're just like, eh, who cares? You go into a church and it's full of gold and image and mosaic and marble and fine materials, then it becomes dynamic. And that dynamism isn't just, I like architecture. And it's not just, look how much money we spent. And it's not just... Well, the pointy-headed academics finally got together and did something good. It's the energy of our own future to be glorified and happy with God coming into our own realm. It's like plugging the coffee maker in, right? There's no dynamism in the coffee maker <laughs> until you plug it in. <laughs> you, Dennis, you lost me at Dennis coffee Dennis has maker. a French press uh, coffee maker, too. Oh, it took I, him a week before he figured out how to... 
I love a good French press coffee. Um, we're going to do this as a two-part, by the way. What? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that was number five. So should we wrap this one up then and come back yeah, to if number you, six? If you want to hear the next five of these um, things that we're talking about, uh, you're going to have to listen next week. Right, right, Dennis? Yeah. So we'll just wrap it up with this. He says, this eschatological energy, this dynamism we just talked about, comes from regaining the idea that the mass is the holy city. What's the holy city? Heaven. Jerusalem, heaven. Dru- right, heavenly Jerusalem. So it's <laughs> we, both, we both got it right together. We were mutually constitutive. Oh, we, the three of us are mutually constitutive. Oh, where, would I, where would I be without your soundboard? Oh. oh. Well, Chris is sort of optional, but he still makes it better. It's good to have a cherry on the on the whipped cream on the Sunday. Well, I could contribute. You know, I read a book once by uh, Aidan Nichols <laughs> <who> talked about <laughs> a tale of two documents and really? how th- this forward vision, though. Actually, this is right. Yeah. yeah. So, oh wait, are you legit doing yeah, this? Yeah, okay. this is legit. Right. This is legit. So um, he talked about the one document is Mediator Day and how it had a very uh, historical sense and a remembrance of the past. But Sacrosanctum Concilium, the second document, had this great emphasis on the future and eschatology and heavenly uh, elements that, uh, that the council is uh, given to us. And if you just say heaven is a bunch of glorious stuff, then you like sprinkle gold leaf everywhere. That, that doesn't make sense. But he's, what he's saying is you tie it to these four things. It's the holy city of this new Jerusalem. That's two of them. It's the kingdom of heaven. That's the heaven and earth and the all rightness, righteousness brought to earth. So no more fall, no more results of the fall on earth. And he also calls it the supper of the lamb. So it's not just a, like a, I don't know, just a museum of pretty stuff. It's the banquet where Christ is welcoming, welcoming us to celebrate, sharing of himself and feeding us with himself forever. But and so it's, it's festive. But it's a good corrective, I think, too, that maybe this is more um, uh, prevalent in his own day, uh, whereas you hear, well, Jesus didn't have this type, didn't use this type of He didn't have gold or cups this, or silk vestments. Yeah, he didn't have fancy altars or good, yeah. But... The Mass isn't a reproduction of what Jesus used 2,000 years ago necessarily, except through, uh, by way of uh, heaven. Right, and here's one thing that everybody should, ever, should know. Forget everything else you've learned and remember no, this. No, no, don't okay, forget. Remember everything else you've learned, but also add this to it. The liturgical Christ is always the eschatological Christ. The liturgical Christ, mm-hmm. and therefore the priest, is always the eschatological Christ. He's not the reproduction of the guy who looked like a mere carpenter a long time ago. He's always the eschatological Christ. But not just the priest, the deacon and the altar. And, and the, the people. And the people yes. and everything is, uh, is the eschatological Christ. Because the reality is not that Christ has left the Father and is hanging around on earth. The reality is he's at the right hand of the Father, resurrected and glorified, and because we're joined to him, that's our reality as well. So everything that's done liturgically is supposed to manifest that. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, there's five more. So if you thought this was interesting, you should tune in next week. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, no, eight, no, nine. no, no, no. One, two, three, four, five. Tune in next week for the rest. Oh, man. I see what did there. Yeah, I get it. Should we uh, answer a question, though? For sure, right? Absolutely. Half of one. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get the other part of the answer next week. You'll hear the question this week and the answer next week. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have an update to a previous question. Chris, thank you. Wow, Chris is getting in the mood. Yes. Dennis, we answered a question a few weeks back about what Without me? Yes, that's true, actually. Yeah, that's why you're updating. You were not in the mood that day. Well, we got a question at when we were at the SLS in Focus a couple weeks ago. Right. That... The question is, do you have to use the proper hymn given for solemnities, the hymn given in the Liturgy of the Hours? Right, Liturgy of the Hours. I could not think of that. So morning prayer, evening prayer, if it's a solemnity, typically they often give a, a hymn proper to that day. And so when you look earlier in the general instruction, it says the proper hymns are given for solemnities. And then it says if there's no hymn given, you should use the hymn from the common. So if it's a saint's day, then use the common of apostles or whatever it is. And it doesn't say must, it doesn't say should, it just says they're given. And the general principle we said was, if it's given, you should use it. That's how the church envisions things. You use the things that are proper to the day for that day. So you wouldn't sing an Easter hymn on Christmas or vice versa. If it's proper to the day, it's proper to the day. So because I have this red phone on my desk, it's the Mm -hmm. liturgical bat phone, I went Mm -hmm. straight to Monsignor Dempsey, who's one of our adjunct faculty members. He's a pastor nearby, but he's also got a doctorate in canon law with a specialization in sort of liturgical law. So I was like... Chris, go peep, 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 peep. Yeah. So I, I made that sound and I called him and he called me back. And so we have a little update on that. All right. What is the update? Were you wrong? I wasn't wrong. Okay. However, it. It, it didn't really settle the question definitively in the kind of liturgical law kind of way. Yes or no. It just We just sort of said, eh, you should. But he pointed out that many of the editions of the Liturgy of the Hours don't even have the proper hymns in them. So the one volume Christian prayer, for instance, doesn't give a lot of proper hymns. And then he directed me to the general instruction of the Liturgy Hours number 178. Whoa, yeah. that is very specific. Which says, with regard to the celebration in the vernacular, Episcopal conferences may adapt the Latin hymns to the nature of their own language. They may also introduce new compositions, provided they suit the spirit of the hour, season, or feast. So that seems to mean that you may. If oh. you can. And if there is some other one, I still think the principle is at hand, though, that the proper hymn given is something the church wants you to church wants you to do. So you should stick to the proper hymns when you can. But if you're going to go in a strict legalistic uh, viewpoint, it does seem that it's legally permitted to use another hymn as long as it's uh, approved by the bishops conferences and is suitable for the hour and the day. All right. So person we talked to at SLS, I hope that this answers your question and i hope we do not have to do an update again and next time we'll have chris there because he will surely add something 170 Uh, everybody knows it's not at 178 (laughs) all right if you want to ask us a question you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com thank you and god bless the liturgy guys is produced by the liturgical institute if you like what you've heard today like us on facebook and follow us on twitter And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.
Now that's a podcast.